Welcome to The Beauty of Horror, a podcast dedicated to exploring the unsettling beauty found within our favorite genre. I am your host, Chandler Bullock, and today is Silent Hill Appreciation Day. Oh, so excited for this. Welcome! Welcome, everybody. We are going to go over the wonder, the splendor, and the horror of the Silent Hill franchise. I am a massive, massive fan of this franchise. And I am just over the moon about being able to share that love with all of you today and to have this particular podcast episode go live. I have covered the Silent Hill film from 2006 already in a good, agreeable, and beautiful episode. Those had a little bit more production value than the usual ones. Uh, I decided to make those more of like a really cool ASMR style kind of review. And I had a lot of fun doing that. But, yeah, I'm this time I'm just going to be able to talk to you square in the face about why I love this franchise. As usual, you can hear my co-star, Mercy the Cat, wanting some attention. I'm alone here today, and she's all lonely, but I'm busy. I'm working. She knows I'm working. But, you know, you're going to hear her chime in from time to time. So say hello every time you hear Mercy. Uh, just consider her part of the festivities. And so, yeah, before we dive into everything, this is part of Horror Queer's October watch calendar. It's October 10th when this went live, October 10th, 2022. And yeah, I was really honored that Joe from Horror Queers approached me asking, hey, do you want to be a part of this? The concept was simple. All of the podcasts out there in the realm of horror that Horror Queers felt that they were connected to in some way, were friends with, they approached to be a part of their calendar. And we had to create a prompt for what you should be watching today. And I chose Silent Hill. A lot of people chose prompts for categories, you know, types of films that you can choose from. And I had a feeling that was going to happen. And I decided to go for a franchise. That was an option that they gave. And, of course, I chose an option that doesn't have very many films. And let's face it, doesn't have very many good films to choose from. So we're actually going to be talking more about the whole vibe of Silent Hill. I want you to feel Silent Hill today because it's very special to me. I'm not going to go on for too long. I don't want this to be too long of an episode, but I do have a lot to discuss. So join me in my stream of consciousness and my joy as I'm going to outline why I love Silent Hill, talk a little bit about the movies, Definitely going to be talking about the games, mostly talking about the games, let's face it. And also, I want to give you a list of films for you to check out that I feel give very similar vibes so that you can kind of stew in the nightmarish realm of Silent Hill all day, if you so choose. So, let's get stuck in. Let's get lost in the fog of Silent Hill. So, of course, first things first... Let's go over these video games. So Silent Hill started in 1999 when the first game was released on the original PlayStation. Now this is a game that I did not play when it came out. In 1999, I would have been 12 years old, so this would not have been on my radar. Also in 1999, I did not own a PlayStation. I was fortunate enough to have a Nintendo 64, so Resident Evil was more in my realm. At the time, at least Resident Evil 2 was out on the Nintendo 64. 
Uh, I mainly played Perfect Dark. It's kind of how I got my uh, horror jollies out in video games at the time. But yeah, I liked games. I just didn't have access to them very often. And so it was not on my radar. I did see images of it in gaming magazines and thought, well, that looks weird. <laughs> but I wasn't really big on PlayStation because I didn't have one. So you know how it goes. It's the whole console wars kind of idea. So yeah, it took me a while before I got into it. And uh, actually, it wasn't until I moved here uh, to the Netherlands in 2005 that I actually got my first Silent Hill game. I got Silent Hill 2 for PlayStation 2 once I got my hands on a PlayStation 2 Slim. And my life changed from the moment I played that game. My partner at the time and I would sit down and play strategic horror games like this, survival horror games. She would print out a walkthrough that we could find on either IGN or I think it was on... I forget what the other one was. I want to say GameStop, but that's the store. So um, tell me, what was out around 2005 if you know if you're a big gamer what kind of websites were around but th there was one that had really good user made guides in case you couldn't afford to buy the ones that were official and they would just kind of in their own words tell you what to do you can find those guides still to this day maybe not those original ones they might still be around but i know that guides like that are still made you know so yeah we would sit back and she would read out what i needed to do and i would focus on the gameplay and get kind of stuck into the story and the horror of it all and have some fun and silent hill 2 was quite a ride for me i really really loved the aesthetics of this game i loved the fog i loved the way all of your enemies were this strange form of body horror with their skin peeled and stretched and wrapped around themselves. Some of the main enemies of the game being these straitjacket characters that couldn't get out of their own flesh really got to me. The fact that you have the character of the Red Pyramid or Pyramid Head, as people have kind of dubbed him over the years, uh, Pyramid Head was quite something to behold around 2005 if you hadn't seen anything of that nature uh before you know so it was just overload i think on a sensory level the music the fact that you had the static i think that's one of the best mechanics in a game i have ever experienced to make you feel tension is to be walking around and because you have this little radio that's useless you just suddenly hear static and all kinds of that AM radio kind of sound and voices whenever an enemy would get nearby. So while you're walking around through the fog, you would have some sort of indicator of whether there was something waiting for you in the fog or not, which made you not want to go in that direction, of course, but at the same time, you had to. So you just knew that it wasn't going to be pleasant. So those guides came really in handy to kind of make sure that I wasn't too tense to play them because I find video games way more intense than movies. Movies are really intense. They can really affect me, especially since you just kind of strap in and just deal with whatever they have planned for you. You don't have any control over the situation. But games can be so immersive that you forget that you are in a game, that you're looking at a screen and using a controller, and it's just a bunch of electrical input from one thing to the next thing. It just hits differently. It really gets into my emotions a lot more. So it was really nice for me to have the guides to know where to go and what to do. Also to be able to experience it more like a film than a very long, arduous video game. It just wasn't uh, 
fun for me to scramble around in terror the entire time. I really wanted to get to the heart of what was going on. The story of Silent Hill 2 is so intense that I just wanted to kind of push through it. I, I love James's whole story arc with his wife, Mary. I'm not going to go into the details of these stories too much, just in case you haven't played them yet, because you really should. You should pick up the old PC versions of these games, or if you have a PlayStation 2, go pick up a PlayStation 2 version of the game and play it. Don't get the remastered stuff, don't get that high-def stuff that they created, because they really screwed around with all the textures and some of the dialogue and audio and stuff. And they really messed with it too much. Uh, all the quirks and everything that we came to love is just not there. And of course, my cat has decided to use the litter box, so we're going to pause for a moment. I don't want to get into the plot of these games too much, just in case that gets spoiled for you, that's all. So make sure you can play these games if you can. If you have a copy, you haven't played it in a long time, something like that, today's the day. Pick it up. Get that vibe. Everything about these games is just such a strong vibe. The entire team behind it, and you know, they call them Team Silent because they were the original people who worked on games one through four at the very least. After four, it kind of tips off. There's still some good stuff in there with Homecoming, I say, has some pretty decent stuff if you like the film. But all in all, when they started going for a more Western approach to it, it fell apart for me. I can't say I really enjoyed most of the games after that and I did eventually kind of like stop I, di I didn't even finish Downpour which I know is pretty blasphemous for somebody who says they're a Silent Hill fan but I just didn't find it very Silent Hill. Downpour to me felt a lot like how the Hellraiser franchise went down in the films you know eventually it just felt like well actually what happened with Hellraiser was that there were a lot of properties that were being created but had absolutely nothing to do with Hellraiser and they needed to keep the rights so they just kind of slapped it on there. I felt that Konami started doing that with Silent Hill as well, that they would get teams together that would make a game based off of an interesting mechanic or something like that, and then they would just call it Silent Hill and try to link it back in some way, but they didn't really do a lot of work to make sure that the experience of playing those games affected you the way the original games did. Now, the first one that came out in 1999 was actually pretty straightforward. Just a dude looking for his daughter, lots of monsters, a whole cult kind of story, and some of the monsters were pretty straightforward as well. You even had some like classic Baphomet-style demons and stuff in that one. Birds, dogs, things like that. Some of them became a mainstay. I mean, evil dogs seemed to be in all survival horror games, especially at the time. Resident Evil and Silent Hill were like, who, who could do the most fucked up dog, you know? And I have to say, I think Resident Evil may have won on the dog side of things. I think they were just kind of irritating in Silent Hill. But Silent Hill won when it came to the creativity of the enemies since all the enemies are based off of the fears of the character of course that applies more for the later games the first one like i said was more straightforward it was really just these are the obstacles to keep you from completing your quest and the cult itself was more of the strange embodiment of the fears of the father but it doesn't mean that none of that is in there it just wasn't as explored as it was in silent hill 2 3 and 4 and 2 and 3 being the stronger ones here. 2 was special for me because it was the first one that I played. It had a lot of evocative imagery in it. Pyramid Head just scared the absolute shit out of me. I loved how survival horror at the time always had some sort of one-hit-kill enemy in the game that 
you could not kill until later in the game. I thought that was a really cool mechanic. I really love it. I think it creates a lot of tension, and it also creates a moment that you just have to run. And I think that part of being a survival horror game, the importance of just running away from a situation and surviving, not actually taking it head on and being an action game, that makes these games stand out. Because Resident Evil, you could kill everything. They had like some moments in those games, but it took them up until, I think, well, I guess part two when they had uh, Mr. X, I think that was his name. I'm not a Resident Evil guy, I'm afraid. Sorry, I don't know the characters too well. But, you know, in Resident Evil 2, you did, you, you know, you got stalked around, and then they really amped it up in Nemesis, where it was pretty much the whole game. Resident Evil Village brought that back as well with Lady Dimitrescu. So, it's not as if it was original. Silent Hill 2 came out in 2001, so things had already been done at this point. But I just feel that like they were perfecting upon the mechanics that had already been created, adding a few of their own, like the static, like the fog, these little details. And I know that some of these were just due to the limitations of what they could do with the equipment that they were using. But still, they did it to a great effect. And then, of course, we get to things like the art design. That shit is where everything just becomes overboard phenomenal here. Um, so the visual art design for the first three games was overseen by Masahiro Ito, who you can actually follow on Twitter right now. He's still telling people a lot about the motivations for a lot of the design choices that were made for these games, limitations, technical things. And of course, just inspirations here and there for how he, you know, decided to do what they did and shows all of his art from the time. It also shows art now. He's still making art and it's still phenomenal work. I know that he's very disappointed in the reception of Pyramid Head and how that legacy has continued to evolve far beyond anything that they had intended for this game. And I kind of agree. I think it's a bit of a shame that it's been used for anything else. I think that if they were going to do that, they should have just continued to create characters that were similar and perhaps served a similar purpose without it being the exact same entity. These games really rely on the lore making sense and everything connecting together. In fact, Silent Hill 2 is special in that it is the first time that we see how Silent Hill really functions. And it functions as this sort of hellscape. It's a place where you are judged and you are tortured and you are shown your inner anguish and your guilt comes to the surface. So the town and everything inside the town starts to manifest in a very strange personal way. All of the enemies are there as manifestations of your own turmoil. And that's very specific to Silent Hill 2. Uh, that's kind of like if you take Silent Hill 1 and take that story and see what the catalyst for all of this was. You then go to 2, and although the game only came out two years after the release of Silent Hill 1, it kind of feels like the story takes place like a decade or so later. And it's like this is what Silent Hill is now, you know? And that really resonated with a lot of people, just this idea of this town that is kind of hell in and of itself. That really freaked me out. The fact that it transitions from being a normal world into a very terrible, terrible world, and they use air raid sirens to signal when it's going to transform in one way or the other. The intricacy of having James's guilt shown in various ways and his responses to certain little details, if you go up to them, it's all really, really well done. 
it would make for an amazing movie. I don't know why they never adapted it into a film, but they should. That's where I think the films went wrong, is they're trying to mesh all of them together into one super film. And although you get a lot of the heart and soul of the story from the first one, you kill it by using a lot of the imagery from the second one because it kind of showed that you didn't really understand the point of all of that. And that's a shame. That really felt like a studio involvement. Like, you can't have Silent Hill without Pyramid Head, and that's some bullshit because he's never been on the cover of any of these games. It's always been the characters, the protagonists. So, I don't get that. Then we get to Silent Hill 3, and that was a big special one for me. I was really delighted to actually write an article about this for Gaily Helpful last year. Uh, It was all about how I saw myself, and nowadays how I can see the kind of origins of my understanding of my gender identity through that game. Because I relate to the character of Heather Mason quite a lot. She's your protagonist in the game, and... It is a fantastic story about coming of age, uh, agency of one's own identity, being told who you are versus knowing who you are, and the nightmares of basically predatory behavior around you and trying to protect yourself at a young age. Um, That game has a lot going on in it. And visually, I think it is the thing that has kind of inspired me the most. Like right now, I'm sitting on the couch with my laptop next to me, and I'm looking at a gif of Heather walking through the nightmare world of a hallway. I forget where this is in the game. I want to say this is at the amusement park, but what I loved about this one is its depiction of the nightmare world, whereas in Silent Hill 2, everything just kind of gets rusted and falls apart. Paint starts to peel. uh, Wallpaper starts to peel off as well. Things like that. It just looks really gross and turns into this industrial landscape. Really cool stuff, but... In Silent Hill 3, it's all like pulpy meat that's moving and sloshing with blood, and the blood flows like fire, and you can't tell if things are burning or if they're just gross and squishy, and the sound effects are all really gross and squishy, and it's just all bodily. It's just body horror all the time. But, you know, it makes a whole lot of sense to me, too, if we're looking at a young cis girl here who is also going through a lot of different... uh, bodily transformations and probably you know a lot of uh, analogies to her period and and her agency as a woman and, and all that it, it makes a lot of sense and then of course there's the extra added bits to it with this cult that are trying to tell her who she is it was and still is one of the most fascinating stories i have ever encountered i was around 19 when i played this game because it also came out in 2003 so both of those games uh Part 2 and Part 3 came out before I moved here. So I got both of those games pretty much back-to-back. 3, I was just... I really related to her. She was... I believe she's supposed to be 17 in the game. But, yeah, I was 19. And I just felt this close kinship with this character. And I still do. I just think that Heather's story is one for the ages. And I'm still really bummed out about the 2012 sequel, Silent Hill Revelation, the sequel to the 2006 movie. It just did not seem to understand what made Silent Hill 3 good. I'm, I mean, I commend them for actually adapting that story, but it depresses me to know that that story is never going to be told properly now because nobody's ever going to want to see it because this movie came out. And that's how consumers are. They're like, well, it's already been adapted. Why would you do it again? I think you should do it again. I think this game could be adapted really, really well in the right hands, especially with someone who understands the significance of the visual storytelling in these games and understands 
how it's more about your experience of them that tells you the story than the A to B to C plot line structure or anything like that. So that's what makes these games unique. They, they are not easy to go through, and not because they are challenging. They are very challenging, but it's because they are not straightforward. They leave a lot open for you to discover. I think that any good video game is going to do this. And even even when we have games that are really straightforward, they're very good at giving you twists and turns and all kinds of surprises or having gameplay mechanics that are surprising and make you really think about what's going on in the game. Because you're going to be with this world for at least like 20 hours. You know, that was pretty standard at the time. Nowadays, I'd say 50 to 60 hours, if not longer, depending on the franchise that you're looking at. I mean, if you look at like a From Software game, maybe even 150 to 200 hours of gameplay. And that's just because the world has to be really rich, the story has to be interesting, and has to have enough missing for you to discover yourself. And Silent Hill really, really understood how to do that, at least for those first four games. I do think that the others do it. Origins, Homecoming, Downpour, they keep the whole mysterious thing going on, but they do it a little bit more in a J.J. Abrams mystery box kind of way instead of actually letting the game really tell you what's going on through the imagery and through the music. The music, by the way, in these first four games, uh, just phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. Um, the music and sound design for these games was by Akira Yamioka, who still makes music and design for games today. I believe the most recent game that came out that he worked on was The Medium, which I still need to play, but it is from a lot of the members of Team Silent, and uh, although it is not a Silent Hill property or anything close to it, it does use this strong sense of sound design and visual gameplay mechanics to tell the story about a medium who can go between realms. And then they make a kind of light horror game out of that. So I'm excited to play that, but I know it's not going to be anything like Silent Hill. But what Yamaoka has done in these four games is basically recreated trip-hop and industrial music. Uh, I liked, I mean, there's some wonderful memes out there. People saying stuff like, Silent Hill fans every time they hear a laundromat, and then there's, you know, people rocking out in a gif or something. And that is true. There's a lot of industrial sound, a lot of metal scraping and engines whirring and fans and stuff. And a lot of these sounds are actually in the game itself. You'll walk past a lot of this machinery to be there, to intimidate you, to create this sort of weird feeling that everything is mechanical, everything is emotion, everything is as it is meant to be, but it's also nasty and dreary and disgusting and horrible. And then, of course, that bleeds into the music and to the other ambience that has been created. And then there's the music itself. There's a lot of actual just musicality to it. A lot of guitars, drums. Like I said, trip-hop is a lot of influence on this. So, you know, you're mixing hip-hop beats with more lounge-style guitars. It's really like Twin Peaks meets Nine Inch Nails in a lot of places. In the best way possible, too, I have to say. I have listened to these soundtracks since I first got these games. I remember I downloaded them way back in the day. Then I started buying them whenever I could. I have them on vinyl. I have a playlist on my phone that I'll put on with just, I think it's all four games and some like deep cut stuff too. There are websites out there that have actually data mined some of the tracks that were never released officially. I have really dug in. I think Silent Hill was one of the first franchises that I ever completely 
nerded out about, learned the lore, got on as many websites as I could, talked to as many fans as I could. I think I did fanfics. I remember when I used to be on Second Life that somebody recreated the town of Silent Hill and we would do Silent Hill cosplay stuff there. And they made all kinds of different like costumes and stuff that you could use for your characters and builds. And you could do a role play like area, but then see it and feel it. And it was amazing. You know, people dressing up as the nurses and as Pyramid Head and stuff. So I've been a part of the mainstream audience for this. I've been a part of the more niche audience for this. I kind of left it as I aged and got into other things. And then I came back to it. I, I always come back to it. And I'm coming back to it again in a really, really big way. And so it means a lot to me as I don't know what you could call me I guess just as a horror creator to be able to share this with you anybody who listens to this podcast knows my love of aesthetics you know my love of horror and what it means to me and I know you know that Silent Hill means a lot to me but I just really wanted to talk about why a little bit more elaborately than I have in the past It has meant so much to me in regards to discovering who I am as a person, discovering my tastes, the feelings that it gives me. It's given me a lot to think about and to explore. I've also used a lot of the things that I've kind of gained from it and tried to create my own versions of these things. I remember, so here's the thing about me. When I first got here, I didn't really have much to do. I was 19 years old. I'm from the United States, but I live in the Netherlands. And therefore, I did not have any EU rights to anything. The only right that I had was to stay here because I got married very, very quickly. Not to stay here, but to stay in the relationship. And so I was here. And then I was bored because I didn't have a work permit I didn't have rights by being married. It was just the right to stay in the union, basically. I had to wait about five years to get European rights to do things. Uh, And then even longer to get Dutch rights to do things, to get subsidies and stuff here as a citizen. And now I have a dual citizenship. For the first couple years that I was here, I was just hanging out in my ex's uh, parents' house. That's where we lived. And they had this new house, I was there when they moved, that they bought. It wasn't new, it's actually from like the 30s, but new for them, that's what I meant. And part of that house, they had a whole kind of tail end that they had built onto the back of it that was a big swimming pool. It had a sauna and everything attached to it, but her parents really wanted to convert it into a living room. So they weren't going to do anything with the pool, we weren't going to fill it up, we weren't going to use it. And it was a good call. The living room is awesome. (laughs) I helped them put it together, put like really good oak uh, floors down. I don't know if it was oak, but it was just really beautiful wood. Um, And yeah, we put beams over the pool and turned it into a large cellar underneath the flooring and everything. It's awesome. But before we actually did anything with it, we just had that pool for, I think, about a year before we actually did anything with it. There's a lot of stuff in it, too. It's all crumbling and rusted, and there's all kinds of weird hooks and stuff in it from like shower curtains and stuff. And I was bored to death. (laughs) I had absolutely nothing to do for myself other than write poetry and kind of dick around with whatever I could find. So I was just creating all the time. I couldn't have a job. I couldn't study. I couldn't do anything significant. I didn't speak the language because this was in Germany. They lived over the border. I didn't speak German. I didn't speak Dutch. I just had to hope that people spoke English. Being 19, you're basically still 15 essentially. You're older, but you're, you're really not that much more mature. 
um, mainly you can focus a little bit better and maybe you've matured due to your life. But in my case, uh, it wasn't that big of a difference. I still had the same childish curiosity that I've always had. And I was more of a, a doer at the time than I am now. And I decided to be creative. So one of the things that they got me because they knew I really was interested in film it was really sweet of them. They got this uh, little camcorder that used like a mini DVD disc from Sony. And it was something that the whole household was able to use, but they let me use it quite often because we got rewritable discs. And I would make little mini films with it. And I, I didn't make anything too narratively, but I would kind of dress up in weird, haphazardly slap together things like bandages around my head and stuff and just get somebody to film me real quick, me just doing something. They're like, I don't know what the hell you're doing. I'm like, you will. I finally edited all these things together, applied effects, used the Silent Hill music for them, and I recorded all kinds of places. I recorded our, our back garage, which is rotten and falling apart. I recorded parts of the fire department that looked really cool down the street. And I recorded a lot in that pool. That pool was a really cool place to record in. Just jumped down in there and just kind of got some cool angles and stuff. Anything that looked old and kind of odd, I got some footage of. We were doing ballet a lot because her mother was a ballet dancer who was teaching for the local kind of music school. And so in the weekends, we would go there and just kind of hang out. And it was a pretty old building, too, so it had some really cool basements and stuff, and I would record in there as well. And so, yeah, I just uh, started recording, like, really abstract stuff, surrealist kind of videos that had no real meaning to them other than vibe. <laughs> It was me trying to have visuals that matched how that music made me feel. So I would start editing the music and piecing it together to make like long master tracks. This is what Silent Hill did to me. I wasn't into any of this stuff until I got into Silent Hill. Silent Hill makes me want to create. So I put that playlist on with that music whenever I am creating. Sometimes when I'm walking down the street, sometimes when I'm going to work, sometimes when I'm writing anything. When I'm working really hard at work, I'll either put on my really nice girl boss playlist of like hyper pop music and stuff, or I'm going to be putting on Silent Hill. In fact, Silent Hill is probably the reason I have such an eclectic taste in music to begin with, because the soundtracks between 1, 2, 3, and 4 are so wildly different from each other, and yet the DNA is the same. It's all industrial, grimy, scratchy kind of stuff. There's also a lot of guitar work in all of it, but it ranges from like mariachi guitar work to... Uh, I don't know, like I said, lounge music, you know, the kind of stuff that you'd have at your local bar or club or something, to trip-hop, to just over-the-top J-pop, you know? There's all kinds of stuff going on. There's a sense of humor to it, too. So it also teaches you that not only should you really, you know, vibe with the horror of it all, but don't take it all too seriously. You know, sometimes it's just what you're feeling is an interesting thing. And I think that's a very important detail. So, yeah, that, in a nutshell, is Silent Hill for me. It is an emotion. It is a place where we are challenged. It is a place for you to discover yourself. And most importantly is how you discover yourself. You discover yourself through the confrontation of your own dark fears, your deepest desires that you've never wanted to actually look at because you're afraid of what they might give you. That's Silent Hill. So, what should you be watching today? What are your prompts today? It's been a while. I know I've taken a long time to get to this point, but I wanted you to get to the end of this. Let's go over some films then.
since this is a prompt for what you should be watching every day in the month of October, I do want to make sure that you're watching some stuff. So, of course, let's start off with Silent Hill, the Christopher Gans film from 2006. You know, if you haven't seen it, this is an opportune time to check that movie out. Just keep in mind, Pinch of Salt, that is a director's view and a studio's view on a franchise that existed and was very successful, had four games up until that point. So... A lot was lost in translation with that movie, but I think a lot of it was done pretty well. At the very least, just focus on the visuals and the sound design. They take a lot of the music from the games and put it into the film. A lot of the concepts are there. A lot of the enemy types are from the games as well. So you do get a greatest hits kind of feeling from that film, and for that I always love it, even though they did kind of completely screw with the storyline in a way that I didn't appreciate necessarily, but still... I think there's a lot to love. I think some of the performances are really good in that film. Not all of them, but some of them are pretty good. And also, the nurse's sequence is fucking awesome. It also has one of the best climaxes in a horror movie I've seen in ages. Very satisfying. It's a great culty, religious horror film. And for that, well done. But if we're really wanting to get stuck in and get to the heart of how Silent Hill really makes you feel when you're playing the games, there are other movies that are better suited. Let's look at some of the inspirations that made Silent Hill what it is, and the biggest inspiration that has always been cited by the developers was Jacob's Ladder. Jacob's Ladder was released in 1990 and directed by Adrian Lin. It stars Tim Robbins as Jacob Singer, and he is going through a rough time, everybody. I don't want to get into the plot of this movie at all because it is a surprise of a watch. If you don't know it, don't even look up a damn synopsis, okay? Just turn the fucking movie on and watch it. It has some of the best visuals of any movie I've ever seen. I can see how it inspired Silent Hill. There are a lot of nightmare sequences in this film wherein Jacob is confronted with imagery that is just indescribable. You just have to see it for yourself. And if you've ever played a Silent Hill game, you'd be like, oh shit, I can see how this inspired that game. So yeah, 1990s, Jacob's Ladder. It was remade recently as well. I have not seen that version, so I cannot attest to the quality of that film, but I am intrigued to it. But uh, the 1991, I can at the very least shout out and tell you you should check out, especially due to how they did the horror sequences in that film, the whole vibe of it. And it has a very similar plot structure. It tries to teach you something as you're watching it. So please check that one out. Of course, there is the original 1987 Hellraiser by Clive Barker. I think that one actually has quite a lot as well. It really reminds me of uh, Silent Hill 2. It's very hypersexual vibe. You know, it's all about desire and the punishment of be careful what you wish for if you desire things and really try to figure out what is it that you actually want and who are you as a person. And of course, there is this feeling of uh, torment, pain, pleasure, all those things, suffering. The new Hellraiser, 2022's Hellraiser by David Bruckner, I think is also a really good one. In fact, although I love the original Hellraiser, and you're going to hear more of my thoughts about Hellraiser in the Pins and Pleasure podcast with myself and Devon Taylor coming up soon, uh, we're really going to get stuck in, in every single Hellraiser film on that one. So uh, it's a limited run of just 11 episodes, unless more Hellraiser content comes out while we are making it, of course. But um, I do want to say that the new Hellraiser, the brief thing I will say is that of the Hellraiser movies that have been made, I think that one has the most Silent Hill adjacent imagery and themes and stuff in it. So 
please check that one out if you haven't either. So either of those Hellraiser movies, I think, are really good shouts. Session 9. Session 9 came out in 2001. It's directed by Brad Anderson. This one is lauded as one of the best psychological thrillers and horror films ever made. I wasn't too hot on it when I first saw it, but I also saw it before I played Silent Hill. So, I don't know, maybe I just didn't quite get it at the time. I've warmed up to it since. I do think it's a really interesting psychological horror film. I think that there's really interesting stuff going on. And I think that it's worth checking out, and I'm going to have to revisit it myself. But, uh, again, I don't want to tell you too much about it, but it's, you know, it's got some really interesting stuff. It uses the setting of an old mental health facility to kind of, you know, it's just an old trope of the asylum being you know, haunted with evil and stuff. But what they do with it is really interesting and how they explore the human psyche and the dangers of not accepting one's guilt or responsibility of their own actions. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot of similarities between Hellraiser and Silent Hill. So I would definitely say Session 9 is a good one to watch. Um, Possession. That's another good one. 1981's Possession. Oh, goodness, here we go. I'm going to try to pronounce the name of the director. It's Andrei Andre Zulavsky. I am so freaking sorry, but there's a lot of letters in there that I don't know if you should pronounce them or not. I don't know how to speak Polish. But uh, be that as it may, this is the movie of Sam Neill and Isabella Adjani in it. And it is amazing. If you haven't seen this, I don't... Oh. I don't want to spoil anything for you, but I covered this in the BD Horror recently this year, and it has instantly become one of my favorite movies ever made. Uh, it doesn't really have a lot to do with Silent Hill thematically nor visually in a lot of ways, but at the same time it does. I think it's more the mood and the atmosphere of this film and how it doesn't shy away from going to pretty extreme lengths when it comes to cosmic horror and supernatural horror on top of a more grounded yet intense dramatic arc and in that sense it really reminded me of Silent Hill a lot the way it made me feel was very uncomfortable very confrontational and I think that it is perfect for today if you want to get stuck in and kind of get that icky Silent Hill kind of vibe uh, Possession is also just always a really goddamn good watch and I could not suggest it more than I am right now just just keep Keep watching that movie. Keep revisiting it. I think the more you're going to revisit that film, the more special it becomes. So Possession is definitely on my list as well. And the last one that I'm going to suggest for you is also a more recent discovery of mine that has also become one of my favorite films. You've probably seen me talk about this quite a lot if you follow me on Twitter. That has come true. The 2020 release by Anthony Scott Burns film that follows a young girl around the age of 18 who is suffering from kind of insomnia I guess is what they're going at she's having trouble sleeping and so she joins this sleep study where they are monitoring people's sleep for unknown reasons and from there it just gets increasingly more vague and interesting until you finally find out what the hell's going on it goes into things like sleep paralysis it shows her dreams, which are the most Silent Hill-feeling sequences I have seen in a film ever. This film has out-Silent Hilled Silent Hill. It does an excellent job with it. it. I watched it just last night with some friends, showed it to them for the first time, and we were all in awe of it. And I'd seen it already like five times. 
this is a film that I can revisit about as often as I can revisit the soundtrack of Silent Hill itself. And the soundtrack of this film is also no slouch. Uh, Anthony Scott Burns himself did the score under his moniker of Pilot Priest, along with the synth-pop group Electric Youth. They did a fucking great job. I love listening to the soundtrack. If I were to combine this with the Silent Hill soundtrack, it's perfect. It's perfection. It's the most modern take on what Silent Hill would be like today. Synth. you got to add synth to it, you know? Uh, I, I would love to see uh, Anthony pick up Silent Hill and try to do something with it, but it is in the hands of a lot of other people right now, but I would love to see what he could do with it. Hopefully he will continue to do films that are adjacent to it the way this one was. Uh, this one's more involved in your dreams than it is with your fears and anything related to hell, but it does come very, very close. And uh, for a sci-fi film, it's the closest to a Silent Hill film I think I have ever seen. So please, if any of these films are not appealing to you, I don't know what to say. Maybe you're not into Silent Hill, but I would love for you to try to find the appreciation that I found. If you can't really care for the stories, if you can't really follow along, something like that, just try to vibe. Remember, one of the most important things that we've discussed on this podcast is the concept of disinterestedness. You have to be disinterested in what you are watching in order to have an aesthetic experience. That doesn't mean that you could not be interested in it at any point. It just means that at the moment of watching it, watch it to watch it. Watch it to feel. Watch it to just let it guide you. Do not watch it because you were expecting this story uh, moment or this development or that character reaction or this to feel that way or that to look that way. Get rid of your expectations and just turn it on. And I promise you, this guide will help you feel what I have been feeling about Silent Hill and about all these properties. It's going to be a very interesting day. And if anybody of you who listens to this, if you manage to watch all these films, please let me know. If you watch any of them, let me know. Because I really want to connect with you on this. I really want to hear your thoughts about Silent Hill, about Hellraiser, about Come True, Possession, all of these things, okay? So hit me up. You can do so on Twitter. It's at underscore shockaholic. You can also hit up the podcast if you so wish. That's at beautyhorrorpod. You can email us at beautyofhorrorpod at gmail.com. And of course, you can go to spreadthebeauty.org if you want to see some articles about aesthetics and beauty. Uh, but those are multiple ways that you can get in touch with me and let me know what you did today. So please, celebrate some Silent Hill. I know I'm going to be doing the same. I don't know exactly what I'm going to be picking up today. I know that I'm going to be looking at a lot of GIFs, and throughout the day, I'm sure you've already seen me on Twitter showing you different images and GIFs and saying things, and I'm just going to be giving little insights. But, you know, it's a busy day for me as well, so if I'm a little slow, I do apologize for that. If this came out a little late, I also apologize for that. Uh, I recorded this on Sunday. Uh, a Silent Hill day for me is tomorrow, but hey, you know... I do have to edit it and everything, but I also have work, so I do appreciate your patience, and I hope that you've been waiting for this episode. I've been waiting to make it for you. Uh, thank you again, Joe, for hitting me up for this. It's been an honor. I'm so excited to have been a part of this and to have been able to make something like this to accompany something of this nature, you know? I think you've put together such a wonderful amount of podcasts on this initiative. Remember, if you're going to be posting about this, you need to use a hashtag... HQ Spooky Season. It's Horror Queer Spooky Season. Make sure that you continue to link back to them and shout out the Horror Queers the whole way through since they are the ones who are putting together this initiative and sharing the love of horror so that each and every day 
in the month of October, you have a little indication of what you should be watching. But I hope this guide was interesting for all of you. I hope you understand my feelings and uh, can share in some of those a little bit. So until next time, remember, if you hear something moving around under your bed, there's none. But you should definitely be one. There's no beauty here.